0: How you define, this is why it all, at some level, hinges on how do you think about the Bible's inspiration and what the purpose of that is, because that is going to be foundational to what you think about is an error in God's communication to human beings. This is why. I think the debate
1: is useless. Out, tell them look out for my worldview. Cloudy when you sink and got you thinking it's a whirlpool Caesar in your pockets you can't see who's in your pockets but Stevie's inner visions touch your eyes and make the world move. Wifey bob her head and make her curls move. Crown jeweler's character and this ain immortality with fairy dust Never land Never say I'd never get you
0: hands if I cant. Welcome to the Belfast podcast where we give Christians their imagination back something something like that right we'll we'll figure it out later yeah it might need to be some Uh, (laughs) uh, some polishing (laughs) you said it better earlier uh, so i'll write it down next time all right um yeah i'm your host luke byler here with daniel and we so we've been doing some interesting stuff about literature about the bible about how the bible acts as literature How the Bible Acts as Art, review of like the last five episodes. We're trying to attempt a transition into more pointed discussions about how the Bible acts as art, because we've talked about it broadly in terms of literary forms in the Bible, but now we want to talk about specific examples of how that works out in the Bible. But before we do that, because we've been making this case about the bible being literature and being complex literature and the bible being artistic which you know implies that there is an artist or artists behind the bible it might sound like we're making a very humanistic case for the scriptures which at some level we are but there's also a great danger that we see in making the bible only spiritual or as tim likes to phrase it golden tablets dropped from heaven and so to combat both of these things and i've talked about this before on my channel but uh tim likes to use the analogy of Esser's drawing hands uh, which is an analogy his professor used when talking about the bible as literature and Tim's point is in the picture, the question is which hand is drawn the other exactly. And so he uses to talk about the divine hand that writes the Bible and the human hand that writes the Bible. And what happens in very fundamentalist and conservative circles is that you get an erasure of the human hand in the Bible, and it is only divine. And in very liberal circles, you get the opposite, an erasure of the Divine hand in the Bible, and it is only human. Now, these issues come up because of how inspiration of the Bible is thought about. And how you think about inspiration is going to affect how you think about and treat the text of the Bible and what is meant to be drawn from the Bible and how the Bible, as Pedens would say, how the Bible actually works which is another book we can add to the list that might be worth a read. Um, So all of that being said, inspiration is the topic for today. We already covered this in a partially covered this partially in an episode last summer, end of the summer or something like that. Uh, We talked about it for maybe 20 minutes because we talked about Uh, inerrancy and the episode before that for a bit. So now we're going to combine the two, talk about inspiration and inerrancy today, because how you view one affects the other. And again, how you view inspiration is going to affect what you do with the Bible and what you think the Bible is for. So to start, I'm going to reread something that I read or at least parts of what I read in the initial discussion we had about inspiration. It is from my textbook, Christian Theology by Erickson. Okay, just again, so you know we're not making this stuff up. And then this section is, if my camera will focus on it, Theories of Inspiration, of which Erickson has five major theories. Time out real quick. Go ahead.
2: I just want to say... I was, was going
0: to stop and then give you a moment to yeah, talk. So go okay.
2: ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Um, re- real quick. I just wanted to say, as you alluded to a second ago, this is more or less a conversation that we've already had on the podcast before. But what it is, is us revisiting it in order to have it simultaneously at the same time, these two conversations, and frame it around the greater study that we've been doing and be a bit more precise in the way that we're describing things. So if you've been following for a while and you've come to this point and you're like, Oh, you guys are just doing this again. Yes. And you might hear some similar things. You might hear some identical things. I mean, obviously you're going to read a book that you've already read on the podcast at least once, but We have a specific reason for doing this, and we think it would be valuable to listen to again, which is one of the reasons why we're doing this. Um, So I think that's important to say. And we're going to be adding on to a lot of the things that we've already said about this topic as we move forward, especially in the later half. Um, So, anyway.
0: Thank you for saying that. And like anything worth thinking about and thinking about deeply. This is a topic that is worth visiting over and over and over again. And not only to help us refine what we mean by it, but to help you think about it again. Hopefully. Back to Erickson. He has five major theories that he distills that are held about inspiration. I know I'll tip my hand a little bit and say, I re-listened. This was about a week ago. I re-listened to the episode where we initially talked about this and you made a good point where you said, why does one theory have to encompass the whole Bible? Which is a great question. So as I read these, keep that question in the back of your head. Um, Erickson ranges them one to five from most liberal, to most conservative i'm gonna do what i did last time and go the opposite direction because i think it's a little actually more helpful than going the other way so and i won't read necessarily as much because i'm a little bit more familiar with these at this point and i can kind of explain them and we can talk through the implications shortly about what each of these means for the biblical text so, the most conservative view one could hold on inspiration would be what's called dictation theory. And Heiser's going to talk about this here in a minute, but I will read the first few. I mean, they're short paragraphs. I'm going to read just a few sentences here because I think his explanation is helpful. Dictation theory is the teaching that God actually dictated the Bible to the writers, passages where scripture is depicted as telling the author precisely what to write are regarded as applying to the entire Bible. Different authors did not write in distinctive styles. Most adherents of the verbal view do take great pains to disassociate themselves from the dictation theorist. And we'll read about verbal here in a second, but the point Erickson is making is that those who ascribe to a dictation theory, which is probably a small percentage of people, by the way, would say, that God, probably through Holy Spirit, took over their minds, I'm using phrases that will be more relevant here in a minute, and, you know, implanted in them, more or less. Think about it, again, here we go with movie references, think about it, Neo in the Matrix, right, plugged in the back of your head, oh, now I know Kung Fu, right, okay, God, the scribe, the prophet, whoever, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, James, Paul. All right. Well, download, right? Oh, cool. Second Corinthians. It's basically what the view says at some level. It's a little bit of a character, but not much. (laughs) Is that, do you think that's a an adept?
3: I I think that if
2: that's not how people who ascribe to dictation theory would word it, that's what they mean. And that's the the logical outgrowth of what they say, right? Is that every,
0: if it's it's not exactly how they describe it, it's the logical end of the view they espouse.
2: Yeah. Because the way that the theory basically works is
3: God used people who were not functioning as people to
2: dictate a divine
0: word. Correct.
2: Um, And you talked about the MC Escher, you know, two hands. Example that Mackie references all the time, right? Um, It completely erases Mm -hmm. the human side of things. And the, the human is only there to be a conduit of God's action as though to use another Mackie phrase, golden tablets fell from heaven. And that I think is a
3: big a very Mormon way
0: to think about the Bible, by the way. Yeah. Golden. There's a reason he uses the phrase for oh, golden tablets, because that is Joseph Smith.
2: Right? 100%. 100%. And um, I think, I think that it's, I don't want to say, shallow in just inherently a a demeaning way, but it's not a complex or realistic way, in my opinion, of viewing the way scripture works. Because we can see, and we'll get into this over the next few weeks, we can see human hands all over it. And in fact, that doesn't compromise the integrity of it, I would argue. And that makes it more meaningful and relevant. So the idea that the only way it's meaningful and relevant is that God professor X mind controls someone to do it is, and and that's the only way that it can actually be a good divine word is.
0: And that's the way that it would literally be the word of God.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, as we're entering this new phase of what we're going to be doing, um, here on the pod is, you know, what is the word of God and what does it mean? And this is a good starting point is figuring out what, um, what inspiration and infallibility actually entail. So uh, I guess. On and on another
0: next. example, but I lost it. Um, right. No, it was good. Cause I was actually listening to what you were saying. And then I lost the thing I was going to say. Um
3: I'll, I'll remember it here in a minute.
0: Okay, okay, so that's most conservative. The next one would be verbal theory, which is already hinted at in a second. Uh, it says this. Verbal theory insists that the Holy Spirit's influence extends beyond the direction of thoughts to the selection of words used to convey the message. The work of the Holy Spirit is so intense that each word is the exact word God once used at that point to express the message. This will get really interesting here in about 10 minutes.
2: Yeah, maybe maybe 15 minutes, but yeah, it's going to get really interesting.
0: <laughs> so verbal theory would not ascribe trance-like states necessarily, but that uh, God is at some level dropping in the heads of the authors as they write specific things and to them it would be words that he desires them to use to articulate or describe something specific
2: i would even i think there's another way you could potentially articulate the theory in a slightly different way is it seems as though god would be almost like darth sidious Scheming and plotting to like orchestrate the way people write and um, the, the way the words get written down to the point where it's the exact word every single time that God intended. Um, almost this like 4D chess match of reality in order to get this specific book to fit within the exact scientific parameters of what what god wanted it to be and i don't doubt and and when we get into some nt right later i don't doubt that the words that we have are the words god intended but that's not the same thing
0: as god telling every author exactly the words he wanted them to use yeah which is where this you know distances itself somewhat slightly from dictation theory but also keeps that same flavor of there's no, this is still the other hand, the human hand is kind of there, but maybe it only has a thumb, you know, it's mm-hmm. barely there.
2: It's almost like a forced ghost hand, right? It's just like, is there, but you can see straight through it. It's got no substance.
0: I'll, I'll use this word on purpose, but these two theories basically ascribe something like possession to the authors of scripture.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They have no agency in and of themselves.
0: Now, when we get to the next theory, the dynamic theory, uh, we get way more human interplay. The dynamic theory emphasizes the combination of divine and human elements in the process of inspiration and the writing of the Bible. The spirit of God works by directing the writer to the thoughts or concepts and allowing the writer's own distinctive personality to come into play in the choice of words and expressions. Thus, the writer will give expression to the divinely directed thoughts in a way uniquely characteristic of that person. This is fairly balanced, right? There's still a heavy emphasis on God being involved in directing, But there is no necessarily control
3: over the author in the act of writing, let's say. Yeah.
0: Anything to add on that one?
3: Not particularly.
0: Okay. The next theory, and again, we're going from very conservative views of inspiration to much more liberal views of inspiration, right? God, heavy hand to Human heavy hand. So, uh, second from last, illumination theory uh, maintains that there is an influence of the Holy Spirit upon the author of Scripture, but involving only a heightened, a height, and but involving only a heightening of their normal powers. There is no special communication of truth or guidance in what is written, but merely an increased sensitivity and preceptivity. With regard to spiritual matters so god's there but he's i don't know nudging instead of directing the authors uh, yeah. using what they already have at an increased level
3: And there's one more theory,
0: right? One more theory, intuition. Intuition theory makes inspiration largely a high degree of insight. Some within left-wing liberalism holds such a view. Inspiration is the function of a high gift, perhaps almost like an artistic ability, but nonetheless a, naturally, a natural endowment, a permanent possession. The Scripture writers were religious geniuses. The Hebrew people had a particular gift for the religious just as some groups seem to have particular aptitude for mathematics or language on this basis, inspiration of the scripture of the scripture writer was essentially no different than that from any other great religious or philosophical thinker such as Plato or Buddha. So they are endowed with a extra dose, sugar, spice and everything nice, but there is no guidance. There is no direction. There is no, nudge of the spirit it is simply
3: they were the best at what they did so they were the ones that did it yeah so it becomes almost entirely natural Mm -hmm. um, if not entirely natural
2: um and i would fall personally just to lay my cards out on the table um I haven't really put myself into any of these categories. I I think I've, I don't want to say created my own, but since the conversation we originally had, in fact, I think it's this conversation that we had way back when that started the dominoes falling for me that led to the essay on Augustine and the artistic interpretation of scripture, because I think inspiration actually functions in an artistic manner as well. Yes.
0: Um, which is part of what i said in that discussion
2: yes right and it is that comment you made that actually led to i think ultimately that paper so thank you um
0: and let me i'll just repeat it very quickly it's from a, a composer who's actually a jehovah's witness that's funny um but he talks about how how we talk about artistic inspiration which i think is a great parallel to thinking about Uh, scriptural interpretation because there's also something supernatural that we as naturalists ascribe to artistic inspiration, right? Mm -hmm. He talked about how he wasn't able to write this certain piece for a really long time. And so he'd go to it and and he'd struggle and he'd struggle and he'd struggle and he just couldn't get it right. He couldn't get the melodies right. He couldn't get the keys right. He couldn't get the tone right. It was just not working out for him. And so he went on to do work on other stuff and it would just kind of sit in the back of his head and he's like, it sat there for months and months and months and months and months and I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure it out. And then he was like one day I was sitting there playing the piano, just trying to work on it again. And within 15 minutes, I figured it out. It was done. I had finally gotten it. He was like, but this begs the question. Was I just so inspired in 15 minutes that, you know, that's all it was, was my inspiration for 15 minutes. It was this heightened sense of, okay, cool. I know what to do. Or had I been thinking about it and thinking about it, thinking about it for six, seven months, and then finally one day all the dominoes fall and I, and it's just clicks, All right? We have these moments, right? You say someone says this happened earlier before we started recording, right? We were having a discussion and I said something in a particular way, and then it clicked. And you're like, "Oh, you have to say that at some point." And I was like, "Cool," but it had been stuff we've been talking about for three months. Yeah, you know, oh, it was that one comment just a a very specific illumination and in in so inspired that I just said it so right that one time maybe but also but also i've been thinking about it for probably years at some level and i just had different words to describe it now just like him said. and i've had this this happen where you know and it's super funny because i've actually i've you know done art and written songs and such and then i'll you know the artists talk about the muse. All right. But a lot of them will say, well, the muse doesn't show up unless you do the work. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. King talks about this kind of in a funny, half hearted way in his book on writing. And it's basically his point is, and also in the book, The War of Art, he makes the same argument the muse doesn't show up until you do the work. Well, okay same thing with the composer he had been working and working and working and working for seven months and then finally one day inspiration hits and he figured it out well okay so the biblical writers all of them who were religious geniuses and knew the things that had come before or had seen things happen had been thinking about And talking about and trying to understand these specific things. And then, excuse me, for, you know, let's take Moses, for example, or um, uh, Isaiah and Baruch, right? Or Jeremiah. All right, they're told to write these things down and remember them, or write directives down. Well, how does that work? we aren't told about a trance. Matter of fact, the only time that I can think of that golden tablets are given from heaven is when God is with Moses on the mountain.
2: And that's only 10 commandments. Those are the only times that happens.
0: So, um, yes, that was my, but that was my, my comments about artistic inspiration. And artists will, <clears throat> all the time. No matter what art you do, we'll talk about. Oh, I don't feel inspired. I'm trying to work on this thing, and then you might talk about it later like, oh, I had a breakthrough. I had a conversation with somebody. I was trying to paint this one thing, trying to write this one thing, and then this idea triggered this idea, and then I, you know, King talks about inspiration for some of his books where two disparate ideas come and collide together, right? He was he was a janitor at a school cleaning out a girls' locker room. And it was a comment that the other guy with him made that gave him the inspiration for Carrie. And he was like, I'd been thinking about doing like a story about telepathy and stuff. And he was like, I couldn't get it. And then, Oh, and then I had the idea for the opening scene and there was my book. Right.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. You know? Um, And uh, anyway, I could keep going on with examples because he talks, it's a great book to read, by the way, highly recommend it. Um, But yeah, like I, I just think it's such a good proxy for how we think about scriptural inspiration, because these guys are scribes, they're writers, they're, they're doing, as we'll see, they're doing things with the text and the things that came before canonically in very, very smart ways and in very subtle ways, right? Genesis 18 and 19, Genesis 38 and 39. Um, You know, so, I mean, heck, uh, Isaiah 38 and 39, right? Hezekiah's sickness and Israel's departure into Babylon, right? Um, restoration, sickness, downfall—all these things are going on. That's why the two stories next to each other. Mark and the and the narrative of Jesus with the fig tree and the temple, and then back to the fig tree. And so, what does it mean that Mark splits up the story? And you know, and I'm obviously tipping my hand like I'm attributing that artistic choice to mark as the author because he has a specific goal and point that he's trying to make in the way he organizes things um so if i were to fall anywhere i'd fall somewhere between dynamic and illumination um i think you have to have dynamic again to do things like prophecy i think at some level You are revealed certain things about what's going to occur. Now, how far you extend that is maybe another discussion on prophecy itself. Um, But yeah, I think you have to have, again, like we've just been. Oh, here's my comment. I finally found it. Um, If our main thesis about time. Place and communication are going to be taken seriously with the Bible. I think you have to posit some kind of
3: human involvement in scripture. And I would say, if you aren't, you aren't reading the book. You're really not. Yeah, I agree.
2: And One of the reasons why I've come to this artistic way of expressing biblical inspiration is through my own experience, and that's highly subjective, I realize. But I don't just mean my own experience in thinking about these things, but I I mean my own spiritual experiences and ways that I believe I've personally encountered God um, in that original episode that we did. I ended up talking about ways in which I felt like I've heard God speak to me. And I think some of it got cut out for some personal reasons.
0: Some of it. Yeah. Um, But you can give the general idea because I think it's very helpful.
2: Yeah. Um, And I think I've actually talked about this on the pod since too, but the the general principle is I've had God speak to me uh, for, for a while as a youth minister, I was present for, um, teens in very very challenging phases of life, right? And now, regardless of whether or not you think God speaks today, like put those aside. I feel like God still speaks today, and I I believe that God has spoken to me still today. And in um in that area of ministry, I would sometimes feel like God was saying certain things to a specific teenager or maybe a group of teenagers and I would then be the vehicle of, of that. And it would be a spiritual intuition and feeling I get. And at the beginning of this process of me learning how to quote unquote, walk in the spirit, right. Is the phrase that we would typically use at least in the Pentecostal church world. Um, it would be like God's giving me every word, every single word. So it almost be the, uh, what was that, that theory, the, the second most conservative sure. verbal theory. Right. But what happened is the longer I spent walking in the spirit of God, the more time I spent with God. And the more I learned who God is, the less God was present for every word. And the more of, the more I became like God in ways and I understood God's desires and intuitions and ways of being not just at an intellectual level, but like it became part of me. And I think that that growth has continued. And I think ultimately that's the growth that we are called to as Christians. And that that can be a whole nother topic to talk about. So I'll leave that there for now, but um, suffice it to say that for a while, being in the Pentecostal Church, I thought that that God taking the training wheels off and like taking the hands off and stepping back was a bad thing, a failure on my part. What was I doing wrong that God didn't feel as present in those re- revelatory you close moments? To God
0: who moved?
2: Yeah, and um,
0: this is why I hate phrases
2: like that. But what I started to realize is that it wasn't that. God was less present. It was that I was becoming more like him Mm -hmm. and that the more I became like God, the less I needed God to say every single word for me. And the more I could speak because I was becoming like him. And so as, as I started to realize that, um, it, it changed the way I viewed the necessity of the inspiration of the Bible as well. And I think that um, this idea that it's artistically inspired is also reflective of the way that throughout that process, I spend a lot of time spiritually wrestling with God. And through that wrestling with God
3: was birthed things that I would consider to be inspired, right? Right. Um, it's
2: that tension and that, that we, I mean, you used the term wrestling earlier with artistic work, right? We wrestle with a concept and then out comes this piece of art. And I think that's similar to how it probably worked in scripture as well. The biblical authors were wrestling with God and wrestling with these deep spiritual truths. And through that wrestling, just like Jacob wrestled with God, which is one of the reasons why I think that is a fundamental identity for the people of God is that all of inspiration, all of God's word, all of our interactions with God have to fundamentally do with how we wrestle with God. And, um, and so the way that I was wrestling with God in that time produced in me the ability to not just have god speak through me in a verbal theory way but me become
3: more like god so that everything i say is now closer to being inspired than it was before right and not that i'm some you know holy person you know everything i say is god's word
2: i fail many many times but but that's kind of what i'm getting at right and i think that that's ultimately the christian call And I think that that same paradigm works
3: with the biblical authors and with scripture itself.
0: No, I think, I think that's a great way to look at it and to, again, humanize some of the authorship that we see in the Bible as, you know, Heiser will use the phrase about God directing the authors to even to certain things. This is why he's, he can be totally okay with, uh peter and james referencing enoch because it's like well it's in the cognitive environment of the author and so god is using now again we can debate whether we consider that should or would consider that book canonical or speaking truth or whatever that means but regardless there Evidently, is something about that that's going on that is true enough that God would say, Okay, Peter, you are going to be familiar with this thing, and it's going to come back later, and you can reference it or you can quote it to illuminate the reality of false teachers, of those who lead believers astray, being under the same power as the nephilim and genesis same kind of idea All right. so yeah and i totally i i have no issues with any of that uh my other i had one other thing i'll
3: remember it i'll remember it in a minute uh Come on! It was it was uh, it was something about wrestling. Um. Anyway, never mind. Uh. Okay.
0: Do we want to move on to infallibility, or do you have anything else to say about inspiration? I think you. I and, that's a great way to kind of. Encapsulize uh, Encapsulize Keeping the spirit The spiritual Holy spirit God involved aspect Of being with the author And it not having to be A download of inspiration So that now they know Kung Fu Yeah Because we operate The same way In our Like you described day-to-day experience with god we ask for his direction we ask for him to speak to us you know in different in different ways right and we'll use phrases like i felt god speak to me through this thing and that thing or you know god really used you to communicate this thing to me or you know people will say man that guy was preaching and it felt like he was reading my mail or he was you know, there was a hundred people in the auditorium, but he was preaching at me. What do you mean? Really? What, what do you mean? Oh, so God used his words to speak to a specific situation in your life because the Holy Spirit is illuminating things as he's being, hopefully following the spirit and saying the things that God is convicting him to say while he's preaching.
2: What's interesting about that too, is that I've had um, my pastor um, here in North Carolina say that every once in a while he'll be preaching a sermon and someone will come up to him afterwards and be like, "Oh, when you said this thing, it really, really spoke to me. And like it just I could tell that, you know God was using you to meet me where I am and he'll be like, "Oh yeah, good. That's great. Thank you. You know, I'm so glad to hear that whatever." And they walk away and he's like, "That is not what I said at all." But apparently like they got something out of it that God really wanted to communicate to them. And what I think is so funny about that is like, he, I mean, he's not going to say, "No, that's not what I said" and like ruin the work that God has done in their life because it wasn't what he intended, right? If it was true and if what they got was true and what they got was good, he doesn't step on that because that's not what he thought he was communicating. Um, and so that, that's also.
0: goes again to uh, inspiration and interpretation,
2: inspiration and interpretation, which I think is kind of the other side of the coin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm writing a paper right now on preaching and maybe at some point after the paper's done, we can use it um, and, and talk about how we interpret things and, um, But yeah, I just think that's an interesting concept in this as well. Uh, But anyway, shall we move on?
0: Yeah, we shall move on. Uh, Before we get into infallibility, I thought it would be a good practice to look at some stuff from Heiser, where he talks a little bit more about inspiration. And the title of this video is, is inspiration like mental telepathy? Air quotes, question mark. So let me share my screen quickly. And we will watch through some of this. And again, Dan, you know the rule. If you need me to pause something, just tell me and I can do so.
4: So let's get into some flawed ideas. Traditional view what I'll label as dictation or divine download, or something that tries to avoid that, but still kind of sounds the same. It <laughs> doesn't really have a name, but I'll show you an example of it. So I remember, I was never taught as a young believer that God dictated every word, like, like he's sneaking up behind the writer and whispering every line, every word, into the writer's ear. But I was taught verbal inspiration. Inspiration extends to each word. Plenary inspiration, that means scripture entirely in its fullness, that's what plenary means, is inspired. Verbal plenary inspiration. So the question that would often come up as well if it.
0: Sorry, I remember the thing I was gonna say. Remember when we watched the Peugeot video and you talked about literal meaning yeah. being people wanting to get have a neutral view of the thing that's being described i think that's the same problem i have with something like verbal or dictation theory is that they want a past that view of what is going on with the words on the page or the the words in the book or the words in the canon or uh, the words in the chapter or whatever it may be does that make sense
2: Yes, I think they're, um, they're seeking a sense of stability. And so in order to do that, what they, what they do is instead of rooting that sense of stability in God himself, they try to make the Bible concrete. And in making the Bible concrete, it's very hard
3: to, well, I'll just say it like this. It's very hard to turn the page when the book you're reading is concrete. Yeah. It's, it's very hard to,
2: to do <laughs> yeah. anything right with it because it's,
3: it was never designed to be like that. It just wasn't.
4: You know, if God's not like whispering the words to the writer, how, how do we affirm those things and not fall into that idea? Okay, so how do we do that? Because if we don't, we're going to get situations like the writers were in trances. In other words, their mind is put on hold or shut down while God does His business, and the only thing the writer can do is listen to every word whispered and just start writing, or he's completely overtaken, and you get what would be called in paranormal studies, you know, automatic writing. Um, you know, it, none of these things are good because what these ideas are most often used in other religions, whether they're book religions or not, for channeling. Okay, and I've said many times, the Bible is not a channeled book. Okay, you don't, it, it, what you find in it defies the idea of channeling. There's too much literary art going on in scripture. There's too much interaction, pinging, okay, one part of scripture with another and another and another. There's too much of that, because it's written over hundreds of years by dozens of hands, okay? It, it just doesn't work, this whole channeling approach. But that's kind of the feel you get or the impression you're left with. So we wanna affirm again that, you know, we have verbal plenary inspiration, but how do we avoid this? now? The evasive uh, link here, I want to open this up, God gives every word without dictation. This is from a well-known systematic theology, and it's one I like. It's, It's Erickson's Christian Theology, the third edition now. And this is widely used in seminary classes. So he says here, it is our contention here that inspiration involved God's directing the thoughts of the writers so that those thoughts were precisely the ones that he wished, wished expressed. At times these thoughts were very specific, at other times they were more general, which is really weasel wording, to be honest with you. Like you can have it either way. You know, it's not specific you know, Oh, it's not intended to be. It's too broad, oh, well, you know, sometimes, you know. Okay, well, let me get over that. When they were more general, God wanted that particular degree of specificity recorded. No more, at times greater specificity might've been distracting. So on and so forth. So that, okay, he's talking about not necessarily the words, but the thoughts. Okay, so if you go down here, it says this at this point, the object. This is just an awful way to describe inspiration.
0: I
2: think you need to say that one more time.
0: <laughs> this is such an awful way. Because he's, he's telling, he's giving, like Heiser's saying, he's giving verbal dictation theory. Yeah. somewhere in the middle there by again weaseling oh well sometimes sometimes it was more specific and other times it was more vague so you know i can have my cake and eat it too with the biblical authors being being directly you know channeled by god to write certain things
2: and what's interesting right is in an effort to make the bible concrete they've turned it into mush right because you tried to make it the, the thing that can't be moved and the foundation upon which everything is built. And yet you've, you've just turned it into mashed potatoes, right? Because now you have to have the discussion of, well, okay, what part is more general and what part is more specific?
0: Yeah, I feel like this is the uh, inspiration theological question of like, is a hot dog, is a, what is it? Uh, oh, oh, what's the question? Um, uh, is a taco like a hot dog or a sandwich, you know? Oh yeah.
3: Like, yeah. Yeah.
0: Who cares? It's yeah. a taco. Like, and let me eat it.
2: It's also, and we'll get into this a bit later with NT, right. But it's, it's useless. It's, it's actually counterproductive, right? Because in an attempt to make this the foundation of everything you've, you've turned it into mush. And so it doesn't actually end up with the, the intended goal, and it, it sets you back.
4: Objection is generally raised that inspiration extending to the choice of words necessarily becomes dictation. Answering this charge will force us to theorize regarding the process of inspiration. Okay, that's fair. Then he says this, which sounds a lot like me, through all life, God was at work shaping and developing the individual author. I'm right there with you, Millard. Got it. Then he goes into the example of Luke. Luke's vocabulary resulted from his education. Bingo. His whole broad sweep of experience. In all this, God had been at work preparing him for his task, and it's like, yeah, you got it. Equipped with this pool of God-intended words, and it's just like, oh, face palm, you know? God-intended words. So, like, if Luke would have used a synonym for a word he used, that's not okay. How would God know unless he was, like, giving him the words? You know, okay, God intended words the author then wrote. Then at the actual point of writing, God directs the author's thinking. See, again, now we're getting into this, like, overcoming the author to make sure he's not a screw up, okay? This process is not greatly unlike mental telepathy. It's like no, <laughs> like what did you do to your beautifully crafted idea? You just destroyed it. <sighs> okay, enough of Erickson. You know, it, it, it's just this is what you get. And again, this is a. I
0: have to point this out. Because I didn't read from this section specifically. It's, this is later in the chapter. <clears throat> Those questions on the left-hand side. Oh my gosh! Does the Bible, particularly Genesis, report historical fact, or is it just a bunch of stories cult from other ancient cultures? Well, that is a bad binary, <laughs> by the way. Uh,
2: well, also the way it's a leading question, which is, yeah. it honestly annoys me. Um, Or is it just a bunch of stories called from other ancient cultures? That's to say that just a bunch of, just a bunch of stories.
0: And also to say that those other Walton would also firmly disagree with you, by the way, Erickson uh, that it's there. These other stories have their own specific theological points to make as well.
2: Um, And it's, it's not just a bunch of stories. It's, a selection of stories that are specifically designed to target aspects of the surrounding culture and attack them viciously. Mm -hmm. That is far more sophisticated than just a bunch of stories culled from other ancient cultures. And so, I mean, the way the question is worded is demeaning to a highly intellectual proposition, which is funny because I think it's actually more well-grounded
3: and at this point becoming more orthodox than your your perspective.
0: Here's something that we've been talking about for two months. What does it mean for other cultures to have an influence on the Bible that we believe is revealed by God? Can we say that the Bible is unique or special? That's actually a, a fair question. Yeah. If the Bible is such a culturally conditioned product, culturally conditioned, I love how he air quotes that Yeah. as if it can be anything, but by the way, Erickson, your book is the same thing because you're answering specific systematic theological questions. If the Bible is such a culturally conditioned product, what possible relevance can it have for it? oh God? That phrase, just the
5: worst. What
2: that phrase says is what we've been saying for months. Oh, I see what you're doing there i see through through your glass house right i see through it all the walls are glass the street is glass it's all transparent except for what i i'm calling out and i mean it's just the same stuff the same postmodern
3: thing but from a different direction yeah which is so ironic Uh, yeah that's a bad
2: question yeah so do you do you have more here with the Heiser, or do you want to move on to the biblical example we I were
0: mean I, I want to give him his two minutes okay to explain to like finish up his thought about why he hates this thing that's going on over here yeah um, I love this process is generally not unlike mental telepathy <laughs>
4: <sighs> okay Enough of Erickson. You know, it, it, it's just, this is what you get. And again, this is a, I mean, Millard Erickson is, is no, he, he's probably retired now. I mean, he's, he's a great guy. He's no rookie. He's very experienced. He's in the evangelical orbit. And it's you, and just like, you're trapped. Like you, you gotta think a little more creatively here to avoid this other thing, because I can tell you right now, in a postmodern world with all the weird stuff that you get on the internet, history, when you start talking like that, oh, maybe it's aliens, okay? You know, mental telepathy. It, 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 look, you just don't want to go there. You just don't want to go there. So, other vulnerabilities. There's the assumed science intent. We get this all the time. It's well worn, you know, path, you know, in the first year. The first two questions, and we also didn't hear him because he
0: had those highlighted, by the way, question one and two that Erickson poses, which is why they caught my eye. But we didn't hear the part of the lecture where he talks about those questions. And I would be super curious to see what Heiser says about those two questions he poses.
4: Yeah. Your class, and a few times already here. You know, we're taught to, th- to think if God's giving them the words intensely moving, doing mental telepathy, okay, that, you know, surely God knows, you know, like this modern stuff that we know. God knows lots of things beyond what we know, but he knows at least that. So in his mental telepathy, we should be able to assume that the biblical writers got this modern info. Okay, you see how easy it is to take one thought, connect it to the other. Th-
3: oh. Okay,,
2: um, that's assuming that the Bible is intending to do science. And we've had this whole discussion several times, right? But the the biblical word in Hebrew for heart is the same as mind, right? Go with your gut. We we've talked about all of that. and and to assume that the intended goal is the same intended goal of a, 19th and 20th century rationalist is just not a good way of doing interpretation right and I think 19th and 20th century rationalism has a
3: lot of good things to bring to the table but assuming that an ancient biblical text is coming to the
2: table with those things in mind is intellectual malpractice
0: in my opinion yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's what Peterson pointed out, right? Yeah. The, the fundam- Christian fundamentalists and the atheistic scientists have the same problem. Yep. They both see different things as the scientific fact, yep. which is just ludicrous.
4: Thought and then draw a conclusion and say, here, I just painted a bullseye on the Bible for you. Shoot at it at will. Let the bombardment begin. It's just, it's too easy of a target uniqueness, everything in the Bible has to be unique. Again, you've read the ends material for tonight. He brings this up, how this troubles people, the the comparisons, the similarities.
0: I wish there was more. I wish they would post the whole lecture, by the way, but uh, I think that gives us a good flavor for what's going on here um and i generally agree i probably wouldn't adhere to as much of a verbal theory as heiser maybe does but um point point taken and i think those two things he said also critique the questions we were riffing on for a second that erickson raises in the beginning of the chapter yeah so that's a a little bit of discussion regarding inspiration kind of to give you guys a some handles about how to think about that some ways in which at least in academia, it gets phrased and used to talk about biblical inspiration and show you where we kind of, where we fall at the moment and where others fall as well. Uh, And also a lot of the vulnerabilities that lie behind something like a verbal or, Dictation theory of inspiration that completely erases the human hand in the collection and authorship of the Bible.
2: Well, and one thing I think is super interesting is that in erasing the human part of the Bible or in erasing the divine part of the Bible, you inherently have a weaker Christological conception, right? Because our idea of Christ is that Jesus was both God and human, right? I mean, it's the, the M.C. Escher, two hands.
0: This is, this is Pete N's whole point, incarnation and inspiration.
2: Yep. Bingo. And that to be incarnate, Jesus had to be both 100% God and 100% man simultaneously. And there's a lot of um, ancient material on theories about how that works out. There's a whole hundred-year controversy on that. To There's not a number of think... controversies on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to, but to not think about that also applying to the Bible, I think, is fundamentally a problem. Right. Um, because I mean, Jesus is the Word, right? The divine Word, and in somehow that is in relationship to this thing that we call the Bible too. And I think that. Um, I mean PNs, Tim Mackey, NT Wright, Michael Heiser, all of them are occupying this space and making the argument we're trying to make that the Bible is both a divine and human word. and to see it as anything less is shortchanging what it actually is and does actually, can potentially do actual damage to your faith if you look at the Bible realistically.
0: I, I've I've heard Kaiser say this other places, but he's like, I bring up these certain things so that like someone on your team can tell you about it. Right? If yeah. if I just leave you to the wolves, someone can destroy your view of the Bible in five minutes using the Bible.
2: Yep. Yep.
0: And I'd rather that, that not happen to you.
2: Well, one so, of the reasons why I'm getting my master of divinity, one of the reasons why I'm on this podcast is because I care enough about protecting people's faith that I want them to actually understand what the Bible is and what it's doing mm-hmm. so that when other people who, and we'll get into this maybe later today, um, and definitely in a few weeks, but um, I know a lot of people who will look at, uh, yeah, we'll probably get into this in a few weeks. A lot of people will look at textual variants that we have in like original manuscripts, and they can use that to completely obliterate people's faith because it freaks people out. But the reality of the situation actually isn't that scary. And we'll get into this later, why it's not. But sheltering yourself from the reality is not a good way of going about having this kind of faith. Knowing enough about the situation in order to have a mature faith,
3: I think is the best way to approach this. Speaking of technical variants. <laughs> Didn't plan that, but that's a good segue.
0: Let's talk about a variant of uh, the same story that happens within the canon. And this is not a small variant. This is pretty important. So.
2: We get the same story that occurs twice in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Once in, what was it 2 Samuel 24?
0: Yeah, once in 2 Samuel 24, once in First Chronicles 21. I'll have them on the screen here. If you're listening on the podcast, uh, you can jot those down or come back here later and look them up for yourself. But it tells about David taking census of the men in Israel and using them to fight. But the Lord gets mad. At this, and causes destruction to happen in Jerusalem. Uh, I ran across this one in. Uh, I think I used the Chronicles passage in my paper on the Angel of the Lord because the Angel of the Lord appears here. Um, there, he is, the same phrase that's used in other places for the Angel of the Lord, uh, drawn sword in hand, that's used uh, in direct reference to him with Joshua in chapter six before five or six before the fall of jericho and then in the story about balaam and the donkey the same descriptor is used of him uh and he seems to be at least in this story an agent of destruction it's not the first time So a little history on a little uh history on the passage a little context for what is happening here but these are the variants that we get and it's in the beginning of the story the first part of the chapter this is 2 Samuel 24. Again, the anger of the Lord, Yahweh, burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a
3: census of Israel and Judah. First Chronicles 21. Same story.
0: Satan rose up against Israel. And incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba
3: to Dan, then report back to me so that I may know how many are there. Okay, author. All right,
0: God. If you are whispering the words... In the ear of the writer, or you're entrancing them to use the exact words you want them to use, who did it? Was it you or was it Satan? Because I don't know.
2: Well, one thing that's also interesting, too, is looking at the way that the, I mean, if you just look at the divisions in the text between the two stories, Mm -hmm. you can see that they follow the same beats, right? So it's David is incited by someone to do this thing. Anger is aroused, Mm -hmm. and then David talks to Joab and gives the instruction. And I mean, at least in the English in this translation, it's almost worded the same in both cases, too, which would lead me to believe that it's probably similar in Hebrew. I'd have to look. Might not be, though. But what's interesting, right, is that it appears as though, and this will get into some textual criticism, right, that one of these authors... Probably the author of First Chronicles, because that's typically attributed to be the later of the two stories, is using either a secondary manuscript, and Chronicles actually talks about this a lot. It talks about the manuscripts that it is using to construct the stories, which is interesting, because it's not presenting itself as the primary source. It's talking about other sources it's using. but one of these stories is potentially using the other story as a source. And or it's using other sources that might also be the sources used for the other story as well. So why does one story say that God did the thing? And God why does the other story, yeah, and why does inside the other story for him say, to do
0: something he knew and told him was going to anger him?
2: Yes. That he shouldn't do. And the other story,
3: instead of it being God, it's Satan. That's a pretty stark contrast. Yeah, this is. And weird. there I don't know are, what to do about this. There are theories. Yeah. Um, so the theories that
2: I've been exposed to, and honestly, this isn't a super major concern for me. Um,
0: no, it's it's really weird. Like, <clears throat> I'm. It's not like blowing up my faith. I'm not. Yeah. You know. Going to lose sleep over these textual variants that we have in the canon about these stories. Um, yeah. Why did yeah. I say that? So weird. That, I, that was. That no, was I, I thought it was a um,
2: good good way of emphasizing. Like if these stories are in the canon, right? Yeah.
0: And they this is say not something, like I'm looking at the Masoretic text versus the Septuagint. Yeah. This is no, 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 no.
2: Within the Masoretic text. So this and is Septuagint. It, is
0: this the same? yeah it's the same translation NIV, for both of them so yeah. uh yeah so
5: Th- so in the- one
0: story it's it's told this way and then in another story we have the same instance help me remember uh, the most wicked king in all of Israel
2: Oh shoot Wow uh, one story we made.
0: get in Samuel and I think one st- or one story we get in kings and one story we get in chronicles, one tells of his uh repentance and the other does not yeah. Why? Well, I think there's some authorial intent in there. Yeah. So. Well,
2: I'd argue there's some authorial intent. And so to go to our um, broader cultural point, Chronicles mm -hmm. is likely written later for a variety of reasons. Um, And it is after God's people have spent a significant amount of time in exile, right, in Babylon, where they are exposed to Persian religion, which was a precursor to Zoroastrianism, which is a very dualistic faith. And so it's thought that this, for lack of a better term, theology of the devil grows somewhat out of this Persian religious um, idea that the world exists as two opposing forces of light and darkness. And so before exposure to that idea, The Israelite imagination was if something happened, God had to have done it because God is the charge and it was God's anger. And then after exposure to that idea, there's the idea or possibility of it being another spiritual force, one that isn't equal to God, right? Satan, the accuser, stands to accuse people and because that's what Satan means, right? It's literally the accuser. Um, and in books like the book of Job, it is almost as though the Satan, the accuser, isn't a bad malevolent force, but is a force on the council, on the divine council, who's sitting there and saying, well, God, I don't know if that person's as good as you're giving them credit. And God's like, okay, well, watch this. And, you know, we get the whole book of Job and that deserves a whole nother treatment. but this idea that the accuser then becomes this evil malevolent force kind of seeps in as the broader culture influences the realm of possibility in the minds of the biblical authors. Does that represent the truth? Does that represent the truth that the pre-exilic people were not exposed to? That's, I mean, we can talk and debate about that, right? But I think that pre-exilic, we already see evidence of plenty of evidence of the theology of the divine council and there yeah. being other spiritual beings present. I mean, we've, <laughs> our first conversation was about henoth, uh, henotheism, right?
0: Yeah, right. And I mean, there's, there's, uh, I mean, there's wicked spiritual forces uh, in the first three pages of the Bible. So yeah, you know.
2: So there's this this back and forth and this tension. Right. But we can see that. um, We can see textual, like pretty significant variance within the canon themselves when talking about the same story in two different versions. And, um, and yeah, to your point about, you know, dictation or verbal theory, which one is it? And I mean, is is it both right? I, just, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I could see a way that those two things work together. I mean, just look at the book of Job, exactly. but at the, yeah, that
0: was going to be my answer, but, but at
2: the same time,
0: why the difference then
2: why the difference? And I'm not, I'm not super concerned. Like it's not rock moving earth, shattering, destroying my faith kind of thing. It's one of those that's like, Hmm, that's interesting. I have questions about that. And maybe those questions can be fruitful. I think what's typically more helpful here is the attitude of the rabbis, right? You see something in scripture that doesn't make sense to you. And you think, hmm, there's probably a truth there that God has for me that I don't have right now. But one day I look forward to God revealing that truth to me when it's
3: necessary. So anyway.
0: Uh, Do you buy the post-exilic view? Also, by the way, to just say this for one person in particular, uh, JP, if you don't like this whole discussion, you were the one that brought that textual variant up to me last weekend, bro. So part of this is your fault.
3: Thanks, JP. (laughs) That was for
0: one person, and I really hope he hears it and leave me a comment. Okay. (laughs) I'll, I'll debate you on Friday. Oh, gosh. Go ahead. Do you have anything else? No, I don't. Um, okay.
2: I, I think we can move uh, so, to the right.
0: So, uh, sorry, I was going to ask you, do you buy the post-exilic view? Oh, of, um, of the dualism?
2: Dualism. I'm typically not a platonic dualist. Um, <laughs> I, I definitely... <laughs> so this this honestly, and one of the reasons why I don't see it as super threatening to my faith is that I don't think it's important necessarily like where my faith is is in love god and love neighbor as self that's what jesus called me to do and i have faith that jesus was the divine son of
3: god in the flesh came to live die rise and ascend for me and the whole world and that he has called me to live
2: as a disciple of him and you know, all that that means. That's central to my faith to talk about Greg Boyd's. Um, we've also yeah. brought this yeah, up yeah. in the past, Greg Boyd's concentric circles. Like that's in the, the most central circle, the circle that's the most important. And my theology of the devil is somewhere in circle four or five, probably. Right. Yeah. And, and if your theology of the devil is in circle one, you should probably reevaluate where you're putting your theology of the devil is what I would say. Um, and if you, um, if your faith is so tied up in, oh, well, this one story says two different things in two places of the Bible, if that's the kind of rigidity that a concrete version of the Bible leads you to, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're doing this video, right. Is to show that these things are more complex and having that view of the Bible doesn't It's not constructive, and I don't think it's even how the Bible was intended to be, right? As as evidenced by this whole situation.
0: So, yeah. Again, to use a phrase you used earlier, they're wrestling with the story and figuring out what it means. Well, and
2: and in one iteration of the story, they're wrestling with the fact that it seems to be like God is doing this thing. And there's the the wrestling tension there. And in the second iteration of the story, there, the what the wrestling seems to have produced via their cultural influence is this idea that a separate spiritual force that is not equal to God that they already had a conception God, of. By the way, that they already had a conception of that got magnified. Then, um, I
0: guess that's the point I was trying to make is. Whether you buy the post-exilic view and this particular interpretation of the story, this doesn't mean that the Israelites then invented Satan because of the cultural context of Babylon. Yeah, it would have been no, 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 no. They already had this. This is, happens on page three. Like, yeah, yeah, there is some sort. Now, whether it's Satan or not is debatable. But there, there are, are dark like there are dark spiritual forces going on. We had a whole egregore episode talking about Genesis six. Yeah. <laughs> like,
2: well, and. Um, I mean, the whole Exodus is, uh, the whole like, ten plagues narrative mm-hmm. is like preconditioned on the concept of dark spiritual forces actually existing and God showing everyone in the world that they do not hold a candle to Yahweh, right? Um, that's that's the Exodus um plague theology, story. yeah. Um, is that God is the God that liberates slave people from the oppressive state run by
3: dark spiritual forces who cannot hold a candle to God. So anyway. All
0: right, let's move on to that. That verse was just an example of if you hold those views, these kinds of things are really tough, really tough to work through. Uh, With that. It raises the question which obviously which one like we've already posed and then also i alluded to it but which bible masoretic septuagint dead sea there's other even textual variants than that uh but is this is this question that comes up a lot that we've dedicated quite a bit of time to already is the con is uh, infallibility or inerrancy In meaning that the Bible is without error and infallible. Um, I've said this again and again and again, and it is a point that we could circle the drain about, which I don't necessarily think we need to spend a bunch of time on. But every time I get in a debate with anybody about this, I always say, yeah, and it depends on how you define error. Is yeah. your defin- Is your point about Hebrew language and words for things and phrases for understanding of the body or, you know, say, I mean, this is maybe would be fun to investigate an episode, but is is Paul's conception of hair in 1 Corinthians 11, like, is because Paul's conception of hair in 1 Corinthians 11 is a very outdated and incorrect way to think about anatomy and reproduction mean that he is wrong? Is that the kind of error we're talking about oh well if genesis actually isn't talking about history if you know the early to, to, think, to go back to erickson's question if the early stories in genesis aren't talking about actual events then they're then they're wrong they're an error again this all plays with how do you think about inspiration? What's the purpose of the Bible? Was God whispering to Moses as he wrote Genesis, the actual things that happened in the beginning when he created the world or Noah in the ark? Right?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Are, are the grammatical errors that happen in the writers of the Bible, is that an error? Does that mean that the Bible is, is has errors in it? The, the thing we just read. Okay, so there's two different deities, essentially that are that are ascribed with a particular action. Well, which one is it? Is there an error because they're different things? Right? Uh, I mean, I could think of more examples, but you get the point, right? It how you define the, this is why it all, hit, at some level, hinges on how do you think about Bible's inspiration and what the purpose of that is, because that is going to be foundational to what you think about is an error in God's communication to human beings.
3: This is why I think the debate is useless.
0: Because, and I wrote a whole paper. Sorry, I'm going to stop so you can talk. But no, you're good. I wrote a whole paper two week. A week ago, two weeks ago, in my apologetics class on the reliability of scripture, of the biblical canon, I spent a page and a half confining what I meant by reliable, and part of that was, it's not scientific concordism. It's not Genesis is talking about actual prehistoric events. It's... What I meant by the Bible being reliable is by the oldest documents we have, by and large, we in 2022 are reading the same Bible that they were reading. That's what I meant. Now, the better and more important question in my mind and the more interesting question and the question Lewis would raise in Abolition of Man would be, yeah. Yeah what do they mean? That's the more interesting question. Because, again, if you take a literalist view, like Peugeot was talking about, in the Genesis account, then the the fact that the words are the same is kind of secondary to the fact that you think the Bible is describing scientific occurrences of, or of human and cosmological origin. You want to pass that interpretation. That's what you're banking on. So I'll stop there. But again, what you think about inerrancy, how you think about inspiration, all hinges on what do you define as an error?
3: Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, all I would add to that is this to certain
2: parts of the christian community specifically in america might sound as though we are like completely um, off base or to use a phrase that we've thrown around to describe ourselves more um, jokingly you know we're heretics right because we we think of these ways that are outside the box or outside the bounds of normal American Christianity. And one of the reasons why we've used the example of Heiser, um, one of the reasons why we've used the example of Enns, Pete Enns, though he might not be quite as good uh, of an example for this. And one of the reasons why we're about to use the example of N.T. Wright is that at least specifically with N.T. Wright, he is very firmly within the realm of, and I'm using air quotes here, Bible-believing Christian orthodoxy, right? He sees the Bible as the word of God, but he's willing to work with the complexity that that represents and not try to boil it down into a simplicity and turn the Bible into a concrete book that isn't capable of doing anything other than beating people over the head with it. I mean, ultimately, if you make the Bible concrete, that's all that it's good for, right? So that would be the only comment that I would make, is that we're not off base. We're not saying anything particularly revolutionary. In fact, a lot of people, a lot of Christians, a lot of good, well, um, well-theologically-educated well, Christians have been saying the same thing that we've been saying for a very long time.
3: And a lot of um, early church fathers as well.
0: That being said, before we run out of time, let's get into N.T. Wright. So this is, um, uh, we were debating which episode this actually is. Um, this is from the Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast with uh, premier Christian radio hosted by Justin Brierly. If you've ever watched uh, unbelievable or the debates that he will have uh, between a theist and a non-theist or uh, two sign scientific people um, about the Bible, about faith. And he'll, he'll have different camps of different things come in debate. Uh, he has a very famous one about uh, oh, what was it with Rob Bell about, universalism from some years ago um to bring bell back up just make us heretics even more yeah uh, but, but uh so you're likely familiar with him so him and nt right sit together every couple weeks and people uh you know will put in questions for them to answer so this is the one about infallibility solo scriptura so only scripture which is one of luther's five solas um and slavery, slavery. We're not going to talk about. It is barely mentioned in the episode. What we're more interested in here, obviously, is about infallibility and the purpose of scripture or scripture alone.
2: Quick note on the slavery bit: um, they only use slavery as an example for infallibility in sola scriptura. And I think they address slavery in more detail in another episode. Yes. So, if anyone's interested in that and disappointed by what they say here as an example, um, look for the other episode. And um, shoot, what was the other thing I was going to say? I can't remember. Oh, oh, yeah, no, I remember now. (laughs) That was a quick turnaround. Um, The first few minutes here, N.T. Wright is going to say a lot of things. And so I am probably going to request, Luke, that you pause it pretty frequently. That way we can comment um, just because he says a lot of things very densely, at least at the beginning that I think are important to highlight. And as we go on, hopefully that'll get a little bit less frequent, anyway.
5: Michael, well, uh, well, uh, I, I think he pronounces it Michal. Okay. Michal He's a native Irish speaker. I mean, he speaks Fantastic. about ni- literally 19 languages like Japanese and Icelandic and goodness knows what. Gosh. He's an extraordinary, brilliant <laughs> linguist, brilliant man. Well, look, um, yep. from that, Michael to another Michael in
1: Ireland, um, who is, I, I imagine, not the same. But um, in any case, the first question on Scripture uh, for today's podcast comes from Michael in Ireland, who says, can you explain what you think is wrong with the American view of inerrancy? And if you
5: wouldn't use that terminology, how would you speak about the trustworthiness of <laughs> the yeah. Bible? I do prefer the word trustworthiness, and I, I take quite a pragmatic view that um, – I really do believe that the Bible is the book God wanted us to have, and he wanted us to have it the way it is. And uh, at the same time, because the Bible is written in Greek and Hebrew, Christianity was a translating faith in the beginning. Uh, Jesus almost certainly spoke most of the time in Aramaic, but we have his words in Greek. So it's as though, yes, this is the original text from one point of view, but it's already making its way out into the world and the point is not to look back at it and say can we analyze this by some scientific test and prove that every syllable is true on some modern pragmatist uh, account of truth the important thing is to live within the narrative and see what it does and the trustworthiness is something that we don't put in our pockets and say i've got this infallible scripture so i'm all right it's oh my goodness if this story is the real story then What's it doing in me and through me, and what's it doing in and through the church for the world? And as soon as you turn around and say, um, "Shall we call it inerrant or infallible?" So he's about
2: to get into all the n words um, <clears throat> that we've n In words. Yes, um, that we've been talking about here. Um, but the 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 thing that he calls it trustworthy, I think, is important. And he also talks about um, how did he how did he say it?
0: Not Um, that we look back on it and say, "Oh, it's absolutely correct in every fashion," but that we live with it, which I think is a better better way. It's a, you know, Marty phrases this also well. Do you trust the story? The story. Are you wrestling with it? Which part of living with it is implicit? Which is why we've been subtly using that phrase about wrestling with the scriptures this is a those two passages right earlier maybe worth wrestling with maybe worth pondering why would these two stories be told differently and these two these events be attributed to different characters right yeah it's not a question of necessarily which one's right or which one's wrong like i said earlier reliability i am i am concerned about the bible we have being the bible they read what I'm more concerned about is what does it mean for me to live what the Bible says, to have it with me, to act it out, to be honest about it, and all those things.
2: Well, I think we, in our culture, we focus so much on memorizing scripture. Like if, if you're in any kind of children's ministry thing, right? You always have the memory verse that we're going over today in Sunday school or whatever. Right. But we don't focus on getting, we focus on getting the words in the mind, mm-hmm. but not so much getting them in the way we live our life. And I think that's because of this view that like the words on the page have to be exact and, and all of this. And like you said, I think it's important that we have we still have the Bible that they had, right? And I think it's trustworthy in that regard. And that's something that we'll talk about in a later episode. But I think it's also important that we understand it's trustworthy because it's accurately reflecting the story God is telling. And that's something that he emphasized too, right? Is he thinks that this is the word of God that we through God's providence are supposed to have, but that does not mean that it's not also a divine and human word
5: in that, I don't like these words (laughs) beginning with the letters I-N, then it seems to me you're getting trapped in a defensive mode, which is precisely what the Bible doesn't want you to do. Mm. Now I know why that happened. It It seems to me it happened because at the time of the Reformation, the question was scripture or tradition. And the reformers said, God's word, God's word, God's word. And so the sense of the Bible itself confronts the uh, many Christian traditions and says, no, there's something more to learn here. And then in the... Seventeenth uh, and eighteenth century, particularly various rationalist movements and deist movements, were trying to say, no, 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 we, we will work out what's true by the light of reason, and if the Bible happens to fit with that, so mm-hmm. be it, and if it doesn't, we'll jettison it. Thomas Jefferson famously, you know, got rid of chunks of the of the Bible, um, and so people said, no, 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 we've got to hang on to the Bible, and then because that happened within a rationalist turn within Enlightenment philosophy, people wanted to say we are going to see this as a rationalist thing. If there is a good God who wants his people to know the truth, he must have given us a true revelation. So therefore, since the Bible is obviously that revelation, it must be absolutely true. Now, I always worry when people argue, must, 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 Mm. must, that if there is a God who he must have done people to know, no, we've got to hang on to the Bible. And then, because that happened within a rationalist turn within enlightenment philosophy, people wanted to say, we are going to see this as a rationalist thing. If there is a good God who wants his people to know the truth, he must have given us a true revelation. So, therefore, since the Bible is obviously that revelation, it must be absolutely true.
0: Now, What do you mean by true? Yeah. Physical yeah. concordism, that's what you mean.
2: Yeah. Well, they don't even mean accurately reflects something about the way the world operates. They mean accurately reflects the physical the events processes. events that happened in history. Yeah. Um, And I also love his comment about must, 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 right? You're predicating your entire foundation of theology on assumptions that might not be one, the right assumptions and two, true. And so be a little bit careful with what you say, what must be and must not be. And also realize that this was a theology that was developed in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, maybe a little before that too, so 18th um, century as rationalism was growing, and I think rationalism has done a lot of good things, but it, uh, it has also made our view of the world primarily about some scientific empiricist method of proving things And the assumption that that is what is most fundamentally true. And I think things like Jordan Peterson's critique of that in in the sense that um, meaning is ultimately what drives our, um, even the way we perceive the world, is something that is exponentially relevant and is, is more relevant I mean, it's not more relevant now than it was then, but it's becoming the relevance that it has is becoming more recognizable because of the way we keep trying to revert back to this rationalistic framework. And um, I mean, I'll be the first to affirm the qualities of the scientific method. But I, yeah. I also think that using that as the most fundamental way of viewing the world, you, I mean, you can't derive oughts like what ought to be from describing what is
0: yeah like 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 peterson said in the video we talked about that's basically just saying which theory is more useful than another which you know could be a toss-up so that's not necessarily helpful right and i think his point that he makes is profound maybe we don't need one way of looking at the world maybe we need different multiple ways of looking at the world at the very least two what is the world physically Mm -hmm. and how do we act
3: well
2: and to use an example this might be a little childish or maybe um sunday morning um mega church pastor right is we have two eyes right and like biologically and physically the reason we have two eyes is because that actually allows for depth perception right and i think what we've been trying to do for so long is philosophically look at the world through one lens when in reality, if you're going to see depth, you have to use at least two, right? Because you, you have to at least see the world in a, a way that accurately represents the, the world as it exists physically and objectively. And you also have to view the world as a hierarchy of values that then drives behavior um, and brings meaning to life. And I think if you don't have those two lenses at least, you can't really see the world accurately. Your depth perception is off.
5: When people argue, must, 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 Mm. must, that if there is a God who he must have done this, because actually, how do we know about God? We know about God by looking at Jesus. Yes, and we know about Jesus by looking at Scripture, but Scripture presents us with a Jesus who doesn't give us truth, as a commodity that we can put in our pockets and possess. He gives us this living truth, which is utterly reliable, but which uh, is not ours to possess, it's it's ours to be driven by out into the world to do what he wants. So I, I have a very high view of scripture. If mm-hmm. I find myself saying in some exegetical argument, at this point, Paul or John or whoever seems to have got it wrong, then red lights start to flash, I think. Um, let's just put this one on hold okay let's go around the tracks and see mm-hmm. may well be me that's getting it wrong and i've seen that happen with many scholars and and so on and i've had to revise my own views about things again and again my understanding may be wrong let's work with the text and see but the text is there for us to work with so for me saying scripture is infallible doesn't shut down questions it opens okay. them up Final that's the difference mm. so much of the Let's work with the text and see, but the text is there for us to work with. So for me, saying scripture is infallible doesn't shut down questions, it opens them up. That's the-
2: so he said something there. Um, thinking the Bible or Paul got it wrong in some way, um, then is he talks about how he's gone through this process and I think we'll get into it a little bit more in the future, um, later on in the, in the podcast, but how sometimes he'll like, take like a scholar will take that idea. Oh, they got it wrong. And then work back around in order to try and like harmonize things or excuse it away and say, ah, whatever. But then later another scholar will look at the same passage and say, no, actually, I think this might be what's going on. Um, and the one thing I think is super interesting and super pre- prevalent among left-leaning scholarship is this I, this prideful idea, and it's almost like same rationalistic framework of like I know one what's right. So we have this meta ethic that we're trying to extend past the Bible, and two, um, my reading of scripture is super servient to scripture itself and so i can just define
0: what's in and what's out it's the fundamentalist like literalism take just in the other direction
2: exactly again playing on the same playing field but just defining the
3: truths in opposite directions
0: i would i would also here's how i would describe it to use things we've referenced before in those senses of biblical interpretation, the fundamentalist is primarily concerned about the nature of the waterfall. And the liberal is primarily, and I use that term loosely, is primarily concerned about how the waterfall affects them, makes them feel. yeah, Or speaks to their individual and or group experience. Both are looking at the waterfall, but they're trying to do different things with it.
2: Yeah. And they come to it with different assumptions about the value the waterfall has. Correct. One is a lot more critical and willing to dismiss the waterfall or cut the waterfall into pieces and say that part's useful and that part's not. Or the other is like, nah, I've got to conform entirely to the waterfall. Um, and I think there are useful aspects to both of those ideas. Um, but I think having that prideful assumption that like I can superimpose myself onto that, the thing.
0: That was my point is both of them do that.
2: Yes. Yeah. Having that orientation
5: is, is not, not great. So much of the rather narrow American fundamentalism shuts down the questions the bible is infallible now sit down shut up and we know the answers the answer, no if this is the book god wanted us to have and, and all questions it, are
1: on I, I suppose in my experience as well the people who have concerns about inerrancy are are asking questions f- from a very specifically western yeah. uh, modern viewpoint yeah, 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 about absolutely. the way texts should absolutely be read absolutely. And, absolutely. And, and not necessarily taking them they were meant to be written in in, Uh, absolutely
5: and the very notion of truth itself um is much more complex than 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 we usually realize you know people think truth i.e did it happen or didn't it happen is it true in that sense well that's the question essentially that dan
1: in illinois asks um who asks a similar question about biblical inerrancy but says if the bible is the word of god can it err? if so how do we know what parts are true
5: yeah well it depends what you mean by "er" and depends how you read the different texts and obvious examples that when the psalmist says god has smoke coming out of his nostrils we say well this is poetry this means that god is a living god and he's active and he gets cross when bad things happen in his world etc fine but i don't think that god is a funny old gentleman with with smoke coming out of his nostrils um but then What about Genesis 1 and 2? What about um, so many um, passages in scripture which many people have said this is a kind of poetry, this is the only way that granted that culture that you can talk wisely about creation and particularly if Genesis 1 is seen as the construction of a temple-like world, a heaven and earth world with an image at the the heart of it, Mm. then this isn't a scientific account this isn't sort of on a par with what somebody in a laboratory in harvard or cambridge or something might say about the big bang or what preceded the big bang this is a way of saying um this is what it means this is what the world as we know means because this is how god made it and the attempt to say therefore six days of creation that's often where it comes down to isn't it, it
1: is it a problem if there are what appear to be on the surface at least simply factual um, inaccuracies so I'm going back to Bart Ehrman who we talked about in a previous podcast I remember when I interviewed him about his journey gradually away from Christianity he said the thing that stopped him being a sort of an evangelical sort of inerrantist was when he first got marked on a paper uh, trying to defend a particular verse in Mark (laughs) about whether the bread offered was under the priest so-and-so or so-and-so and his tutor simply said what if Mark got it wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that sort of suddenly <laughs> things came tumbling down for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, what's what's going on there? I, I, is it a problem if Mark did happen to misattribute yeah, yeah. the the person who uh, was the priest in uh, charge yes, at the yes, time, yes, whatever yes, it might yes, have
5: been? Yes, I, I've never felt that as a problem. And maybe this is a deficiency in me, but um, uh, I think there's two things going on because I've met again and again uh, scholars who've said, "Oh well, at this point, Paul just had indigestion and didn't really <laughs> quite mean what." To do. And I've had really famous scholars actually say that, "Oh right. well, the, the Paul Paul he was just having what, an off day. He was yeah. just not concentrating at this point." And I found over and over again, and I've been studying Paul obviously for for nearly fifty years, that then. 10 years down the track, some scholar reading the Dead Sea Scrolls or doing a fresh take on something in Paul will come back and say, it really looks as though at this point, what Paul is actually meaning is such and such, or- He got it right after all. He got it right after all. And so I want to say, just cool down here And the quick, oh, it's wrong, really isn't as easy as that. Another one which people quote again and again is um, uh, the census at the beginning of Luke. Um, And and, and Luke is often translated to say um, this was the first census at the time when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Let me just check what in my own New Testament (laughs) translation. Tom is now referring to... He's recently
1: yeah. released um, New yeah. Testament, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bible is, for Everyone, along with John Goldingay, who did yeah. the Old yeah. Testament. Yeah.
5: Hit, but, uh. um, and uh, here in Luke 2, 2, it says, this was the first census before the one when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, I didn't make that up. Uh-huh. Um, the word, the Greek word protos, and other scholars have pointed this out as well, but not a lot of people actually have cottoned on. The Greek word protos with a genitive can mean before rather than the first so i say this was the first census but it was before the one when and and, and, and the, just to, the, to, to, to the, the close yeah, the, the circle the, what, the, what's the, point the problem in, that's been pointed out the problem here before? is that from josephus the jewish mm. historian we know when quirinius was governor of syria and that wouldn't square with what appears to be luke's chronology now many people have, have fastened on that mm. as part of their case that the birth stories were all just made up later and, and got wrong of course it's possible that josephus got it wrong but that that's another that's another question and i think again we we need to lighten up in terms of for instance the order of events um that, that when jesus comes to jerusalem and he curses the fig tree then goes in and, and comes out and it's 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 withered away mark arranges that story one way matthew mm. arranges that story another does that matter for goodness sake it really well, doesn't there's matter. been some interesting yeah. work
0: i would say it does matter because of what the author is trying to convey with those certain stories but his um, point is does that tell the actual you know, linear case of events? That question maybe doesn't matter.
2: It, it matters in the author is trying to do something with the story. Mm-hmm. And so the rearrangement of the chronology helps them make a greater theological point. It doesn't matter because...
0: Have you ever watched a Tarantino movie? Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> See, I was wondering how long it would take. And we there go. we go. There's there's the reference. Um, but it doesn't matter in the sense that it's earth shattering to my faith if one gospel portrays it in one chronology and one another, because I don't assume that the text is trying to tell that kind of story. And going back to the point I made earlier that he then um, made in more detail than he did when it originally brought it up. But a lot of critical thinking scholars will come to the text and say, well, oh, this doesn't make any sense. And then later another scholar will come and say, well, it it actually kind of does look at this and this and this. Um, And so one of the things that I think is important to do and that consistently bothers me is that people don't do is they don't assume that the author knows what they're doing. They don't assume that the author is competent in making a point and intentionally using all of the available tools at their literary disposal to make that point right they can use literary tropes intertextuality um, switching stories around and laying them next to each other and so they juxtapose different ideas Um, like all of these things are legitimate tools that are at the disposal of biblical authors that right going back to inspiration, is it God, is it them? I don't know. But I even if we go verbal dictation or whatever theory on, on that side of the spectrum, even if we assume those those kinds of stories and we come to these weird, like chronological flips. Is God
0: not smart enough to know what he's doing?
2: Is God not smart enough to know what he's doing? And I think the natural assumption there would be, yes, so God must be doing something artistic and interpretive with this story. Mm -hmm. So take your stick out of your butt and actually look at this like it appears God intended you to, right? Mm -hmm. Have a bit more intellectual integrity and honesty and openness to recognize that God might not be fitting into your formula.
0: Right. Right. And this is the trouble with people who are on in those camps normally is that, again, they take a certain view of, say, literality, meaning it conforms to what actually what literally happened when they view the Bible, which is why God would have to supernaturally tell the author what to say, which then inhibits an artistic or literary interpretation or intention yeah but if and here's a way you can have your cake you need it too i guess if you really want to uh which is totally fine with me all we're trying to say is the bible's complicated and it's doing some very complex things so just to say that and it was very obviously had is was written to communicate to humans and had humans involved in writing it. However you take involved, obviously is what we're debating here.
3: Yeah.
0: The point is that God's communicating to people. So even if you take a verbal or dictation theory and have issues with placement of events, say in the gospels, then the question shouldn't be, well, is God wrong? The question could be something like, what is God? Even if he's whispering in the ear of the author, what is God saying in this moment? Because he's obviously using something here to draw my attention towards a thing. Yeah. Uh, I would just attribute that to something else, not necessarily like God whispering in Mark's ear. Hey, can you split up that story about the cursing of the fig tree? Mark just knows because he has the spirit to guide him and the, uh, Intellectual capacity to understand the images of fig trees and temples and Jerusalem and destruction. And he knows what he's also going to do two chapters later yeah. in the story with Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple.
3: Yeah. Right. And then his eventual crucifixion and resurrection.
0: I'm just attributing it to Mark being a smart author under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, doing things to draw the attention of his readers. But you could also take it on the other hand and say, well, God's whispering in Mark's ear what to say so that those who read it will understand what he's saying or what is what God is saying through Mark. Either way, I, it's fine with me. Like, I like a bit more a human Bible because I think it's a little more honest with how the text actually appears. Yeah. Right. And I don't necessarily need a past that interpretation. This is why, you know, I can take or leave whether Jonah's an actual story or not.
2: It's an actual story, but is well, it actual you, history you know I mean. or is it a yeah. parable? Is yeah. it history
0: or is it a parable? And yeah. I don't, it doesn't matter. And truly, it does not matter to me. Yeah. Because that's not where the meaning of the text lies.
2: Yeah. Well, and and even if you're going to read it as literal history, again, I've said this before. You still have to look at it as a story, mm-hmm. but the problem with looking at it as literal history is that it naturally inhibits your, the ways you usually look at stories. Yes, Right. And so you're not expecting the tropes and, and the literary ways of communication because you're expecting a video camera. They're going to reference it on uh, NT Wright's going to reference it in a second. Um, you're expecting the transcript of an audio or video recording.
0: Yeah. The biblical authors weren't stenographers in a courtroom. No, no,
2: they weren't.
3: So
0: they were something more like, uh, something more like a, a great screenplay writer or a director. Yeah. How much time you got?
3: Um, Let's just try to finish
1: this. By Mike Lacona who am um, oh, yeah. working off Richard yeah. Burridge, really, right, um, right. to say that was the way they wrote biography all the time of course. in those and, days. They rearranged their materials. it's the
5: way we write biography well, as well. As we've mentioned there before. There are many, yes. many biographies today. I, I just picked up a, a new book on the...
1: I was literally about
0: to say this. Yeah. When we were talking about books in history, I was like, well, biographical writers will place certain go watch my video that has six views on biographies about CS Lewis and the different goals of each author and why they construct the narrative of his life in certain ways that they do and have it sectioned off in certain ways that they do and emphasize and de-emphasize certain things and use and don't use certain uh, um, uh, like primary sources. Right. There's a reason that when McGrath writes his biography, it's, very much, hey, here's the letter that Lewis sent, and here's what he said, or here is the gist of it. And then when you read the Hooperography, they'll say, here's a block quote. Here's literally what he said. Okay, well, is one of them wrong? Is McGrath in error? Because he doesn't quote Lewis verbatim. No. Is McGrath wrong? Because he spends time thinking about the... uh the psychology of Lewis and what might've been happening in his head or why he in his autobiography spends three chapters on boarding school and does not talk, but one sentence on going in world war one. No, they're just have different goals. They're highlighting different things about the man. Doesn't mean they're saying untrue things either.
2: There's a difference in including certain aspects of the truth and including falsehood. Now, obviously, excluding certain aspects of the truth can produce false perception. Correct. But that does not mean that all limited descriptions of the truth produce falsehood. And what's even, I think, more fundamentally true is every description of the truth that we humans make is a limited, limited description. Because we can't describe all truth that is potentially relevant to any one situation.
0: To go back to your uh, eye analogy, we're limited in literal sight and hearing and speech and in body. We're limited creatures. We talk about this all the time in theology, right? God is not, essentially, until he takes human form, which goes back to the question you raised
5: before. Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, and it arranges quite a lot of the material thematically. So here's Michael Ramsey dealing with the South African problem, and that cuts to and fro across chronology, and then mm-hmm. we come back and mm-hmm. here's Michael Ramsey dealing with um, synodical reform or whatever. Well, if, if you haven't
1: seen it, I do recommend Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? Mike Lacone, oh, right, he does a right. fascinating study looking at uh, various aspects of Plutarch, and oh, yes, where yes, he does exactly yes, yes. the same yes. telescoping
5: or yes. spotlighting yes. Yes. and
1: yes. lots of other things. And, and this, this would
5: only be a problem if you're an 18th century rationalist who thinks that the Bible was just a transcript of the videotape that somebody was running when Jesus was walking around Galilee. And clearly that's not the case um, because actually that isn't how anyone does, history or biography. It's always done by selection and arrangement. There's no other way to write. I mean, it's a similar question here, but I don't know if there's something.
0: I think here's a, unless there's something else that you specifically need him to say.
2: Um, I, th- I mean, he's going to get into the principle of incarnation and sola scriptura in a little bit.
0: Okay. And I just talk to- about
2: trajectory hermeneutic after that. Okay. And then also talk about the verse in First Timothy that we use. Okay. But um, we don't necessarily need him to say that because at this point it might be just hammering home. The okay. I just wanted
0: to made. to replay what he just said.
5: Yeah. Okay. Go. for There's it.
0: There's literally no other way to write.
5: Yeah. When Jesus was walking around Galilee, and clearly that's not the case, um, because actually that isn't how anyone does history or biography. It's always done by selection and arrangement. There's no other way to write. I mean, it's a sim-
3: again.
0: I, I, it's so simple, but it's such a good way to say it because, again, we, I'm just so troubled by the view of Bible as golden tablets from heaven every word is simply implanted in the mind of the author and it's a matrix download. Yeah. Because it, it assumes something that the form of the thing, how, how, how can I say this? Well, it assumes something that the form of the thing that it's taking is impossible to do. Yeah. What do I mean? It assumes an omniscient third person perspective When that is not the view that literature can take, even when you are writing to make another reference that is consistently made in this podcast, Frank Herbert writes Dune in third person omniscient, but, but, and especially in the second book, this is more true than the first. Partially, but, you are third-person omniscient as a narrator, as a narrator, meaning you can see in thought and intention in every character's action and mind. But even within that, you still describe single character's action, thought, and intention, usually at a time, even if you do two characters interacting on the page. You can tell how one character perceives an action and then how the next character perceives the next action. But there's still linear progression in that thought by itself. And then you might take a chapter in this section of say one chapter here, it speaks of what's happening with uh, Baron Harkonnen. And then the next chapter takes place of what happens on Arrakis, where you don't have those two chapters just mushing together like mashed potatoes and like happening at the same exact moment you're still differentiating them by chapters, so right? It's the third-person omniscient, fully comprehensive view, even in a third-person omniscient POV fiction story, is limited in scope and scale because that is what happens when you put words on paper.
2: Well, it's also what happens when you put, um, like, for images on a screen screen. Yeah, Yeah, images on a screen so that the this will just reveal to everyone how nerdy i am uh my wife and i are and i've told you about this luke we're going through the entire marvel cinematic universe movies and shows in chronological order
3: what's interesting
2: though yeah right um and it's taking us quite a while right we're taking our time with it it's you know whatever but it's been fun because doing it in chronological order, you kind of see some things that you don't see otherwise, right? And what's interesting is in trying All to right. figure out what?
0: Qualifier. When you say chronological order. That's what I'm about to get to.
2: Yeah, that's, that's, that's why, that's why I'm bringing go this ahead. point up. <laughs> is because there are things that happen simultaneously in di- like totally different so let's take Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., right? That's happening simultaneously to like four other things in one season. And so you would have to watch like one episode of this, one episode of that show, this movie, and then back to this, right? Because you can't watch all of them simultaneously and it makes sense. So what we've had to do is we've had to, because of our limited capacity, say, okay, it's not fun to cut this season in half Go watch a whole season of another show and then come back to this season, right? Because that disturbs my ability to actually enjoy the material and understand what's going on cohesively. That's, it's not productive. And so what we've done is we've said, okay, this might not be exactly chronological, Because that would be painstaking and useless. And it would actually limit my ability to understand the plots of both shows. Right? Because if I'm flipping back and forth between them, I can get plots confused. I can forget what's happening in one place because I've spent so much time focusing on another. It's useless. Right? And the fact that we think that the Bible is somehow more than... The way a video camera
3: records, it,
2: it's not useful, it's not productive, and it actually hinders our ability to perceive the Bible's truth accurately.
0: Here's one more example Memento. Oh, shoot. Because I got you to watch the
2: movie. You did. You did. We never talked about it after. I mean, we did. We never talked about it online.
0: No, but okay. Here's the genius. And I look at my, I have a poster that Dimitri, shout out to Dimitri, made me for the prestige. Uh, Warner Brothers, please don't attack me. You've already attacked me on YouTube enough. Um, <sighs> um. Anyway, but if you watch Memento, right? it's, It's reverse, but it's also not. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. there's. Color there's scenes that are in color and there's scenes that are in black and white, but the scenes that are in color happen in reverse. The scenes that are in black and white that uh, do they happen chronologically? Not really. Like,
2: well, and what's yes so and no
0: because there's also flashbacks that happen in black and white yeah. when he's telling Guy Pierce. I forgot his name in the movie is telling the story of uh, Sammy Jenkins. Yeah. and so again there's because nolan's a genius except for tenant i different discussion and maybe interstellar uh this is why he needs his brother to help him write movies Um, uh, but because john because okay to that point jonathan's actually the one that wrote uh <laughs> memento and then nolan just made it but yeah. um but there's a way in which the, the the it's literally crafted as a film to jump between these time points so that even if you watched both of them chronologically, they wouldn't have the same effect on you as yeah. an audience member watching them in reverse.
2: Well, and the whole movie puts you in the perspective of someone who has horrible, horrible memory loss. Yes. So not, not only are you experiencing time differently but you're also embodying the character on a greater level than you do in almost any other medium which really shows a lot about the ability of the movie to change and alter perspective but it does more conversation yeah but it does more than um, like it deepens your your like ability to step into the story and appreciate what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would say that the same thing can happen with the Bible, but that does not mean that we snip it up or or that we view it as like this video camera moving along because the exact opposite thing happens with memento and it actually increases your ability to step into the story. That doesn't decrease it. Right. The fact that it's cut up and not happening in some scientific rationalist perspective enables you to embody the character more not less
3: Mm -hmm.
0: and beautifully when you reach the end of the movie you go oh and back to our point and maybe this is a worthwhile place to end yeah back to our point about what do you do with this thing maybe i don't know I have to email Warner brothers or something. Memento is worth like a whole watch party and discussion. We might have to have John in on that conversation. Um, But there you go, John, you probably will not listen to this, but that's all right. Um, But at the end of the memento, the, the memento at the end of memento, you are left sitting there pondering and wrestling with what you just watched, who and who isn't the villain. What perspective do you actually back to our, questions about narnia whose perspective on the story do you actually think is true even though you just watched what happened but you need an interpretation of those events that supersedes what is physically going on you need to know the meaning of that and how certain characters imbue meaning on things that might not have an actual to speak of the waterfall Mm -hmm. sublimeness or meaning to yeah. them right yeah. um john g i'll just say it for those who've seen or are familiar with the movie same thing with the bible there's ways in which the authors the writers the scribes the the compilers have put it together Mackie will talk about this in weeks to come that upon reading upon reading the book this is peterson's point about where is i'll, I'll just kind of quote him at the moment because it's very helpful Where is the meaning found? It's found in the words. And it's found in the sentences. And it's found in the sentences in relation to the chapter. And it's found in the chapter in relation to the book. And it's found in the book in relation, at least in the sense of the Bible, to the canon. And it's found in the canon's relationship to the culture. Yeah. It's found at all those levels. And we are then left to wrestle with. What do those meanings mean for us or mean for the audience or meant for the author? Or what is God trying to, this is the, this is what we're all trying to to figure out. What is God saying to me in this? Yeah. Or what was God trying to communicate or how, why does, or why, why does, you know, um, why does Genesis 38 come next to Genesis 39? What is God telling me about the character of certain people? Why does Abraham, why does Genesis 18 make it really clear that Yahweh visits Abraham with two other men and then Genesis 19 talks about the two angels in Sodom? But in the end of Genesis 18, Abraham is left arguing face to face with Yahweh in a body about the rescue of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. Why I don't, and this is something my teacher said this morning that was very, very profound. I don't think necessarily because he is so concerned with Sodom and Gomorrah, although he is. But we're only in Genesis 18, guys. Genesis 12 was the promise of the nations to Abraham with a barren wife, and he still hasn't had his kids yet. Matter of fact, he just took the sign of the covenant, which is why he's in chapter 18 sitting in the shade under his tent. But I think Abraham is, and this is right, we wrestle with the meaning. What is going on here? I always thought, well, he's trying to save Sodom and Gomorrah. He's such a righteous man, worried about the cry of the oppressed. And I think he is. I think Marty's right in that reading. But I also think that Abraham is sitting there trying to figure out who, because I obviously knows that these people are special that come to his house. The writer at least tells us that later either imposed or abraham himself knew what was going on through tradition but i think abraham's ultimately trying to figure out who is this that i have covenanted with and what is his nature how does he dole out justice What does his wrath look like and what is going on here yeah. and will he spare Well, apparently, Lot and his family are the only righteous, but they do get spared, by the way. It's a story of salvation as much as it is a story of destruction and wrath. But again, we wrestle with it. We ponder because we do the same thing. Who is this that we have covenanted to, that we are serving? Well, he's been telling the story from the beginning, and we found it preserved and reliable and scriptures and the question of are there errors in it how exactly did god use the humans to write it i think are very relevant questions we wouldn't have spent two hours and change talking about it if it wasn't important but i think ultimately hopefully we have convinced and been convincing you that the bible is doing fantastic things and it is very very special and beautiful, and it is worth fighting for and wrestling with and fighting over because ultimately it is telling a story that we should want to be a part of. So that, that's that's all I got. Do you want to end with anything?
3: I mean, all I'll say is um, both
2: sides of this coin. I think. End up imposing what um, NT Wright calls a trajectory hermeneutic, right? They impose, like, this has to be the end. Therefore, this is the purpose this of the is, thing, right? This is the purpose of the thing. So, um, one example would be does Paul, the, the example they get to later in the podcast, is Paul setting the stage to overthrow slavery or is Paul excusing slavery? And how do we, we mean view Philemon? that? Yeah. With Philemon and, and a few other texts. Right. And, <clears throat> um, is Paul, can we then derive a meta ethic from Paul about slavery um, or can we derive a meta ethic of Paul about sexuality or whatever that we then extend in our context further than Paul goes? And one thing that Wright says is we have to be careful with that because we have to ground ourselves very deeply in creation, in new creation, in salvation, in revivication, and resurrection before we can start to even think about extending the ethics of the Bible into our modern context in ways that it's not extended in the text, because then that is in a way imposing ourselves on the text. And I think both sides of this coin of this debate do that to various degrees. They try to extend the Bible past what it was intending and they aren't grounded well enough in resurrection restoration creation and new creation so for the audience go listen to the end of the podcast hear how he talks about um, first timothy referencing all scripture is god breathed and how um, being god breathed does not mean that it is not a divine and human work together right and how being god breathed and being scripture at that point wasn't even the new testament that was exclusively the old testament right um, and think about the ways in which this idea of scripture hinders your ability to work with it. It doesn't magnify your ability to work with it. It doesn't provide any clarity. So that would be what I
0: would say moving forward. Um, maybe, maybe it's worth when we have some more time revisiting the end and discussing.
2: Maybe. Um, but I think, honestly, we've probably driven the point home at this point. But I think that those key points right there are important um, simply because they, they kind of, yeah, it, it proves the point that trying to go past that, right, extending the, the idea past what the Bible says and imposing your own self onto the text, as opposed to analyzing what the text is saying and doing, not just with word for word. Things And we didn't even talk at all today um, about how every almost every American interaction with the Bible is in translation and how that can at sometimes be a potential distortion of the text. Um, and I don't mean that in a necessarily derogatory way either. And so, you know, taking great care to do this well. Is important, and that's what you and I are trying to do. And
3: this is our attempt at raising issues with the way that that is done on all sides of the theological spectrum.
0: And I'll just make this very, I'll say it for the record to make it abundantly clear. You've said this before. I haven't said it as explicitly. I love the Bible. I love it so much. And I would not be doing what I'm doing if I didn't. And so for those who might hear this and be concerned that I take it too lightly or am willing to dispense with certain things because uh, I'm just becoming a progressive or trying to be cool and relevant, I don't think it could be further from the truth. Uh, While that might be worth wrestling with, and I have been, Uh, I I ultimately think that that is not what is going on here. I think what's going on here is, is that I have found that there are just better, to use Lewis's perception again, there's better frames for viewing what is going on in the Bible than what I might have grown up thinking about it. Ways that are more true to the Bible itself. And I'm not saying that to superimpose my scriptural ethic or my trajectory on what the Bible is. And I think it does fight for all of those things you talked about earlier. Quite clearly, and quite theologically, when you put those issues of slavery and whatnot within the context of creation and new creation and restoration, All those things are great. And all those moments have come from Christians, by the way. Um, But yes, I love the Bible. And this is why I do what I do. It's not because I'm trying to diminish the Bible or demean the Bible or
3: think less of the Bible. And. I just think the. I just fundamentally don't think that the Bible is a plain description of events and or the
0: basic instructions I need before leaving earth. I think it's something way more beautiful than that, which is what we've been articulating for the past four weeks. And it is because of those things that I spend six hours on a Tuesday or Thursday and many hours before the week in that doing what we do here. And so I wouldn't and I wouldn't dedicate my educational life to understanding the Bible if I didn't think it was utterly important and relevant and lovely. So that's just to put that on the record i don't do this to be cool or progressive or fun i do this because i love the bible and i think that there's actual answers out there for some of these questions and i also think some of the questions we've been asking are stupid questions and i want to expose those for for what i think they are now i very well could be wrong something right tends to say quite a lot is i know Something like, I know I'm at least wrong 25% of the time. The only problem is I don't know what that 25% is. And I want to remain with some of that humility. So there there we go. I'll, I'll just say that.
2: We might be wrong, and you might think we're heretics.
3: But even if both of those things are true, we're wrong heretics who love the Bible and love God. And I'll just say this for
0: our conversation we'll have about the New Testament. Jesus is, he says it himself. Why do you tell parables? So that those who see will not see, and those who hear won't hear. Basically, I say it to confuse them. So that those who actually want to hear will investigate. The more I read Jesus specifically, the more confusing he is to me and the more strange he appears. But the more beautiful he yeah. is and the more he's worthy of my pursuit and investigation. So. Anyway, this has been the Belfast podcast. Um, I will give these out because I haven't done it in a while. You can follow me at Luke underscore Byler 816 uh, on Instagram. Email me. Please email me at Belfast at gmail.com. Uh, I've been getting a few recently and just been really encouraged by those. So thank you guys very much. Um, always, uh, as always like share and subscribe, uh, if you would leave me a rate and a review on iTunes, I have like 10 ratings and three reviews that are all by close friends of mine. So those don't count, uh, leave me some ones from strangers and I might end up reading them on the podcast so we can have some fun with that. Uh, with that being said, thank you all for listening. And we will see you in the next one. Tell
1: them, look out for my worldview. Cloudy when you sinking got you thinking it's a whirlpool. Caesar in your pockets, you can't see who's in your pockets. But Stevie's inner visions, touch your eyes and make the world move. Wifey bob her head and make her curls move. Crown jewel is character, and this ain't immortality with fairy dust. Never land, never say I'd never give you hands. If I can't give them back, then you look like